Galatians chapter 2 today, Galatians chapter 2. Last week we talked about being uh, unified in the gospel and the way that the gospel actually unifies us as uh, uh, Christians. And we saw that there was some distraction, some desire to really separate the church and divide the church. Paul uh, talks in such a way that he's, uh, he desires to bring the church uh, back together. And so today we're going to be looking at Paul's stand for the gospel. So notice starting in verse 11. This is uh, Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're actually going to just read a couple of verses to get started here. The Word of God says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted appropriately along, uh, alone with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And let's, let's stop and we'll ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we do thank you for giving us another opportunity to start the first uh, day of the week um, in fellowship and, and in worship and, and a time to uh, really, really gather together around your word. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would um, clear my mind this morning, help me to uh, focus on your word and uh, your spirit, and we do pray that you would use uh, your word as you see fit uh, this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 16th century, the world was divided over a man named Martin Luther. Some thought that he was a demon that uh, was in human form. Other people thought that alone, uh, that everything he spoke was, was correct. And uh, Martin Luther was really a brilliant uh, man. He was a dedicated and brilliant young man. At the age of 13, he actually went to a university to study law. He actually was able to get his bachelor and his master's degree as quickly as he could in the shortest time allowed by the university. In 1505, his life took a dramatic turn. At the age of 21, Luther found himself in the midst of a storm, and he began to, uh, to travel, and, and lightning was strack, striking all around him. And this particular time, a lightning struck very close to him, and he began to fear for his life. So he cried out to St. Anne to save him, to bring him through this storm. And he made a pledge. He said, you know what? If you bring me through this storm, I will become a monk. Well, Martin Luther did make it through that storm, and, and he did just as he said he would. And he fulfilled his vow. Luther gave up all of his possessions and became a monk. Now, Luther was extremely successful as a monk and later said, if anyone could have entered into heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But you know, as he began to study the scriptures, he was faced with Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 says this, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Luther didn't focus on the word faith. He focused on the word righteousness. He began to think to himself, how can I ever be a man who walks by faith because I am not a man who is righteous? And so he began to struggle with this idea of righteousness. And how can I be a man who walks by faith if I'm not a man who is righteous? 
Well, Luther began to study the book of Romans, and it was through his study of Romans that his question was answered. And so Luther says this. Of course, Luther was a German, so this is translated into English for us. But Luther said this. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is through which the righteous life uh, live by the gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Luther began to realize that salvation was not through the, the rituals or the sacraments of the church. And so during Luther's time there in the 1500s, 16th century, there was a lot of different things you had to do to be right with God according to the Roman Catholic Church. And as he began to study the Word of God, he began to realize that what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching was not correct. And so he actually began to confront the Roman Catholic Church. And as you imagine, uh, this, this uh, man who simply studied the, the book of Romans, going against such a big um, entity such as the Roman Catholic Church that was very difficult for him, Matter of fact, they took him and they actually put him on trial. They asked him to recount all that he had said. They actually asked him to stop being a priest, period. And this is his words to them as he stood on trial. He says this, Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, distinct, uh, a distinct grounding of reason, then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. And then he adds, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther stood for something very important, and really the world has never been the same. So Martin Luther stood for the gospel and the gospel by faith rather than the rituals of the church. And so I, it's interesting that as he was walking through that thunderstorm, that lightning storm, he called out to who? St. Anne to give him strength. But in the end, as he stands there uh, before, I think it was um, uh, the, the Catholic church and uh, the... Uh, not the president, but the leader of that time, he said, here I stand, I can new, uh, do no other, God help me. He now had a relationship with God that he did not have before. And I tell you that story because Luther stood for the right reason. He began to study the scripture and he realized that the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was wrong that they were not in accordance with what the Word of God teaches, what Paul himself taught. And so in this life, there are things that we should stand firm in. But you know, there are also things that we should let go. In our fallen condition, we tend to separate for the wrong reasons. Luther stood for the right reason. And as Paul points out today, sometimes as Christians in our fallen nature, sometimes we can stand for the wrong reasons. And so first of all, let's see Paul's unwavering 
commitment to the gospel. So Paul's unwavering commitment. We see this in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And so here, Paul has already talked about going and, and visiting Peter on occasion. So far in, in Galatians, he's talked about visiting Peter twice. And so he's gone back to Jerusalem twice. He's met with Peter on two different occasions. And every occasion that he's met with Peter so far, there's been a sense of unity and fellowship. And remember last week, we talked about that fellowship that he had there in uh, verses one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But then we kind of see a turning point here. We actually see a disagreement between God's apostles. And so we have Cephas, that is the Aramaic uh, equivalent of Peter, which means rock. And Peter here, he's visiting Antioch. Now here is a, a map of, of the area at this time, and, and so you might recognize uh, some of these places. This is Antioch. This is where uh, Paul had his headquarters. All right, how did Antioch get started? Well, first of all, we should know that Antioch uh, was a pretty large city. Matter of fact, during the New Testament time, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had about a half a million people. How did Antioch get its start? Well, there was some persecution in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's down here. And the Christians began to be persecuted, and so they fled Jerusalem, and they began to go to other areas. And so some Christians fled Jerusalem, and they went this way towards Antioch. Now, those Christians, now we're not talking about pastors and evangelists and missionaries. We're just talking about the regular, everyday Christian that was being persecuted. They fled up to Antioch, and they began to spread the gospel. And a church got started there in Antioch. And so that church getting started, it began to multiply. And so the church in Jerusalem began to realize that there was a new work standing in Antioch, starting in Antioch. And so they sent Barnabas up to kind of head up and oversee this new church. Well, Barnabas, at, at getting to Antioch, he realized, wow, this is, this is a lot of people. I need some extra help. And so he actually reaches out to Paul. So when you're, where's Paul? Paul is from Tarshish. That would be um, up here. So he reaches out to uh, Paul, and he asks him to, to come on down and, and to help him. And, and you might notice some other areas in here uh, that we're familiar with. Here's Corinth over here and, and uh, Ephesus over here. And actually, this place right here, this would have been the south part of Galatia. And so this is where Paul went on his first uh, missionary journey into this area, and he actually uh, spread the gospel in that southern part of Galatia, that, the same people that we're reading about today that he's writing to. And so this is the first time that we know of, at least at least uh, the first time that we see uh, recorded here in, in Galatians, that Paul comes, or Peter, I should say, Peter comes and visits Paul and kind of oversees what's going on here. He's heard about this church. He's, he's, he's heard about it from, from Paul and Barnabas on the different visits. But now he's having an opportunity to witness things firsthand. And so again, there in that, uh, in that uh, first verse, in verse 11, I opposed, to it, uh, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. All right, now when we read that word condemned, we think about uh, maybe like being thrown out of heaven, that maybe somehow Peter lost his salvation, but that's not how Paul is 
referring to Peter. So he's not saying that, that he has lost his faith or lost his salvation or has lost his justification because of, of the, the, uh, the path that he's on. Instead, what Paul is saying is that he is found guilty of wrongdoing. And so Paul uses the word condemned to describe Peter's lack of, uh, I'm sorry, his, his guilt in compromising his freedom in grace. We see this more fully in the very uh, in verse 14. Notice there in verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So there was something off about what Peter and about what some of the other um, Jews were doing that were not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul gets a little bit further into that a little bit later as he talks about justification. And so he talks about the application of, of where we are, how we get our justification. Then he also talks about that idea of unity that really brings us together. And so Peter is not walking in the right way. And so Peter is not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is justification through faith alone and not through the Mosaic law. But we're not going to get into the answer that Paul gives us right away. Instead, we really need to see the root of the conflict, all right? The root of the conflict. Why is, is these two apostles, remember, an apostle is someone that God has ordained to spread the gospel. And so Peter was the apostle to who? The Jews. And Paul was the apostle to who? All right, the Gentiles, all right? They were both together in ministry, they both were supposed to spread the gospel, but they were spreading it to two different uh, groups of people, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles. And so we see this root of conflict between them. And so we see this in verse 12. Notice there in verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Jews, that is key Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. All right, so Paul brings this up. There was a time in Peter's life where he was having fellowship, and he was breaking bread, and he, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But then some people came, and he stopped doing that. And so notice what Paul points out here. He says, for before certain men came from James. Certain men came from James. Now, this is James, one of the pillars of the church, one of the leaders there in the Jerusalem church. This is the same James which we read the book of James from. All right, he was Jesus' brother. He wasn't an apostle, per se, but he was very important to the church. And so here some men come from James, and they go and they visit Peter, and Peter begins to do things a little bit differently. Now, I do want to point out the words that Paul uses about these men. He says, certain men came. Now, this is a little bit different than what we read previously in chapter 2, verse 4. If you remember in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul calls these, these Judaizers false brothers. And so he uses that term false brothers because really these people saw themselves first as Jews and then secondly as Christians. So they said, really, really, you got to be a Jew if you really want to have a relationship with the Lord and then 
become a Christian. And so they were going and they were telling these Gentiles that were already Christians, no, that's not good enough. You need to be a Jew as well. But maybe Paul's wording here states that these people that came from James were first Christians. But then because of their heritage, they had adopted some things that maybe were not in line with the gospel. And so he doesn't call them false brothers, but instead certain men came from James. All right, James was an important character in the church as well. And so these men were sent by James. Now, we're not told why, okay? We don't know why uh, these men came and talked to Peter. Maybe it was because he was ha- breaking bread and, and uh, having fellowship with Gentiles, and, and maybe James was trying to correct something that he thought was an error in Peter's life. Now, was it an error in Peter's life? No, it wasn't. Matter of fact, uh, God in a dream came to Peter. And this is in Acts 11 and 12. And in Acts 11 and 12, actually what happens is God uh, offers him some things that would have been on the unclean dietary list. And God says, eat. And Peter's reply is, no, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten any of that. I have only eaten what is right for us to eat. And God tells Peter, he says, you know what? Don't call what is unclean what I tell you is clean. And so Paul, or I'm sorry, uh, God tells Peter that, you know what? This dietary law stuff has has been overturned. Really, you should break bread and have fellowship with the Gentiles. And that's where we really get into what is going on here. All right. And so they, they withdrew back and separated himself in verse 12. They did not want to have bread and break fellow, uh, to have fellowship with the Gentiles. And so we see this in the very next verse. The rest of the Druze acted um, hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, I should point out that this is not just two different groups. We understand that as Jews and Gentiles, as a matter of fact, when I was uh, in middle school, high school, we had different groups within our student body. And so within our student body, we had different maybe like factions. And so we had like the preps and the jocks. And then we had the, the skateboarders and the stoners. And then we also had the Asians and, and the Mexicans. And, and so we had all of these different groups on campus. And normally, if you walked onto the campus when I was a student, you would see every day that, that the jocks and the preps, they ate there. And, and the Mexicans, they ate there. And the Asians, they ate there. And, and the skateboarders and, and the stoners, they all ate in this area. And you could always find them because they always ate in the same area. They were broke up into these groups. Now, I should tell you that what is happening here has nothing to do with peer groups. Matter of fact, I remember one time when I was in middle school, and I don't remember what the conflict was about because I wasn't really part of all those groups. But I remember there was a, there was a conflict before, between one group and the other group. And so one group got another group with them, and the other group got another group with them. And there was a big amphitheater in the middle of our middle school. And we had classrooms that went all the way around, and, and the middle was a big amphitheater. And all of a sudden, and I was kind of on the outside, but all of a sudden, all of these people started meeting towards the middle. And I was like, what is going to happen here? And then the bell went off. And lunch ended, and we all went to class. And actually, the uh, the administrative the, the 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 administration, I should say, and the teachers, they realized what was happening. They actually rang that bell early 
our lunch got cut and everybody went to class. It was a way to break up this big mob from uh, starting a fight. And so we, I should say that this is not what we're talking about here. Instead, what we're really talking about is a dietary requirement set forth in the Old Testament. And so this is what was happening. For the Gentiles, they were free to eat whatever they wanted, and they did eat whatever they wanted. But the Jews, by custom and, and really by the Old Testament law, were only supposed to eat certain things. And so when it came to breaking bread, the Jews were beginning to separate from the Gentiles because they began to realize if I sit down and I eat with the Gentiles, I might be served something that is not right for me to eat. And so they began to separate themselves, and that is what is happening here. Okay, This is not like a debate between what do you like better, Pepsi or Coke? And we have the group Pepsi over here, and we have the group Coke over here, and they eat at different tables. That's not what's happening here. Instead, it's much deeper than that. And why would it be deeper than that? Well, we need to understand something that's happening in the background. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone shared in a meal is in the fact that they are sharing God's blessing with others. And so when they broke bread, they saw this really as an opportunity of, of fellowship before God, because as they broke bread together, they were all acknowledging God's blessing upon them. And so Peter, un, not realizing what he was doing, is he was actually communicating this to the Gentiles. He was saying, you know what? Because you are not following the dietary law set up in the Old Testament, you cannot eat with us before God. You cannot break bread and, and, and share in that blessing that's been given to us. And so this began to come across as, for the Gentiles at least, if we want to be accepted before God, we also must eat of these certain foods and not eat of those certain foods that we too must obey this dietary law. And so Peter, not realizing what he was doing, was actually communicating something that was contrary to the gospel. And he was actually sending a signal to the Gentiles that it was not enough to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that, that it was not Jesus Christ alone. But if you really wanted to have good fellowship with other believers, you had to do this as well. And that is why... Paul confronts Peter to his face. It's not because Peter just decided, I have more in common with this group, and we all like Pepsi, so we're going to drink Pepsi over here. And the Gentiles, they more like the uh, Coke or Dr. Pepper, and so they're going to they're gonna eat over here. It has nothing to do with peer groups simply separating. Really, it goes a little bit deeper than that, and it goes back to the law about what foods were clean and unclean. Now, why did Peter change? Because we read that Peter did. He did at one time eat with the Gentiles, and he was fine to eat those unclean things. And why did he do that? Again, because God told him. He revealed to him in Acts 11 and 12, it's fine. It's fine to go ahead and eat of these things. But why did he stop? He stopped because of peer pressure. And so he knew the right thing to do 
but he decided not to do it because he feared another group. And that other group was a circumcision party. So really, he thought, really, to get along with other Jews, I need to do something a little different. And so uh, he began to disassociate in that fellowship of breaking of bread with Gentiles, and he began to eat only with Jews. And this actually had a bad effect within the church. Now, we talked about, we opened up, we talked about um, Martin Luther and, and, and the profound effect that he had and how really the world is, is better because of that. But Peter was actually leading people down the wrong path. And so there were Jews that began to follow Peter as the pillar of the church, the example, an apostle to the Jews. And they began to think to themselves, if Peter does this, I should do this as well. And they began to head down the wrong path. And so Paul, being someone that is really focused on the gospel and in tune with the gospel and knows that the gospel should be by faith alone and nothing added to it, he confronts Peter to his face and says, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. And so this is Paul's unwavering commitment to the gospel that he was even willing to confront a partner in ministry, another apostle, because this apostle was headed down the wrong path. And as we just covered, the root of the conflict was more than just what your favorite type of food was. Really, what it got to was that conflict between the dietary requirements of the Old Testament. And Peter... Maybe he realized it, maybe he didn't, but he was communicating that something that was not connected to the gospel. And so Paul brings this up in the very last thing as he communicates justification by faith. And really, that's the only way that we can be justified is by faith. It's not a list of do's and don'ts in our life. It's not if you eat of this food and you don't eat of that food, then you'll be okay uh, but really, justification is by faith. And so notice what Paul says here. He said, I said to Cephas, again, that is Peter, before them all, if you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Paul is pointing out something in Peter's life. He says, you know what, Peter? I know that you have eaten unclean things. I know that in the past you have broken bread and you've had fellowship with Gentiles. Now you are acting as if you are better than the Gentiles, and yet you act as a Gentile. So Peter, here you are trying to convince the Gentiles in your actions that they need to become Jews when you yourself live as a Gentile. And so really, Paul points out that problem in, in Peter's life, and he says, here is your hypocrisy. All right? You say, we must do this, or they must do this, but Peter yourself, you don't do this. And then he says this in the very next verse. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now he addresses Paul addresses the elephant in the room. So what is the elephant in the room as, as far as this whole argument is concerned? Yes, there are 
two people groups. There are the Jews, which is uh, God's people. The law was given to the Jews. They know right and wrong. They know what is acceptable before God. They have a heritage in that. But then he also calls the Gentiles, and notice he calls them Gentile sinners. And why would he call them Gentile sinners? Well, because he is dividing these two groups and is he separating them into two factions, into two groups. And he says, we, we have the law. We know what's right and wrong. The Gentiles, they did not have the law. They did not know the expectation. Therefore, by default, they're sinners. We think we're righteous because of these things, but the Gentiles already know that they're sinners because they never had the word of God like we do. And so he divides them up into two groups. And the reason why he's going to do that is because he's going to address the elephant in the room. Yes, Peter, you see two groups. Obviously, God has sent you to one group, and he has sent me to another group. But now what he's about to do is bring these two groups back together. And so notice there in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice again, yet we know that a person, he does not say a Jew is not justified. He does not say a Gentile is not justified. Instead, he lumps both the Jews and the Gentiles together, and he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul brings Peter back to really the heart of the gospel, which is this. We are all sinners, and we all need a Savior. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew and you had the law from the beginning, or you're a Gentile and you never knew what was right. You, by birth, was, were a sinner. It doesn't matter because, really, we both need justification and justification is not through the law. The justification is through uh, Christ. And so Paul addresses that elephant in the room. And then he continues and he says this. So we have been blessed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Now I should stop there and point out what does this word, what does this word justified mean? It's kind of a, uh, I don't know, it's a, I guess kind of like a, a law setting, a court setting. Uh, justified is, is this. There's, a, there's a, a verdict that has been pronounced. And so who has pronounced that verdict? It's, it's God who has pronounced that verdict. And the verdict is not guilty. It's actually the idea of counted righteous or declared righteous by God. And that's one of the things that Martin Luther discovered when he began to read through and really study uh, Romans is he the entire time he thought to himself there must be something that I do to be righteous if I'm gonna walk by faith I must be righteous and then he realized actually it's not walking by faith or it's not my righteousness that allows me to walk by faith but instead it's Christ's righteousness because when Christ Jesus, he died for us, and, and we're going to remember that uh, a, a little bit later in our service, the fact that he hung on that cross and, and that uh, 
uh, his, his blood was, was poured out for us so that we might have forgiveness of sin. But of course, if he simply cleansed us from our sin, we as Christians would be a big zero, all right? We wouldn't have anything against us, but we really wouldn't have anything for us either. We would simply be a big zero. But Jesus Christ did something else besides die in our place and take upon himself our sins. What Christ did for us is he lived under the law and yet never once broke God's law. And so living under God's law, God saw him as 100% righteous, that he had fulfilled the righteousness of the law, Paul tells us. And so when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees us in our sin. Our sin is taken away through the cross. But his righteousness is given to us, is imputed to us. Now, as God sees us, he sees us through Christ. And so as, as uh, Martin Luther, he was really debating on, on this idea of what does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith, he realized that really if we want to be righteous before God, we must accept that free gift of Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness that is applied to our account. That is the only way we can have a relationship with the Lord. And that's what Paul points out here as well. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, all right? And so that could be circumcision, that could be uh, the Ten Commandments, that could be the dietary law, whatever it is, or the moral law, whatever it is, we cannot earn our way to heaven. And notice, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, sometimes in, in our Christian lives, and this is a misconception, this is wrong thinking. And so if you have this wrong th thinking, let me help you correct that today. Sometimes as Christians, we begin to think to ourselves, if I do this or that, that God will love me more. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? If I give money in the offering, if I give money uh, to missions, if I read my Bible every day and I pray, God will love me more. And the truth is, if you're a Christian here today, God already loves you with a perfect love. A perfect love means that that love cannot get any better. But at the same time, that means that God cannot love you any less. So the fact that we are justified before God means that God loves us with just as much love as he will always love us with because he loves us with a perfect type of love. Now, I should say in this life, sometimes the past that we're on, that sometimes they do bring God's blessing, and sometimes they do bring consequences. And we see that even in our, in our account today. Peter is confronted by Paul. There's some consequences to his actions. All right, at one time, Peter and Paul, they were in good fellowship. But here in our passage today, we see a breaking of fellowship because Peter is headed in the wrong direction. And Paul, really a, an, another partner in ministry, comes alongside Peter and, and desires to put him back on the right path. And so there's so many people in the world today that they're trying to 
to justify themselves. They are trying to declare themselves righteous before God. And that's one of the things that Martin Luther dealt with. How can I declare myself righteous before God? Because he looked at his life and he was not a righteous guy. He was very intelligent. He was very wise. He was a man who studied and studied and studied. But what he found was he was not righteous. What he needed was Christ's righteousness. And so as we think about our passage today, let's go ahead and review. First of all, Paul has an unwavering commitment to the gospel. As a matter of fact, it leads him to confront a partner in ministry. That wouldn't have been a good confrontation between two apostles, but Paul was so committed to the gospel, he saw that it had to be done. The second thing is we see the root of the conflict. All right. Again, this is not just a personal preference thing. This is a dietary requirement thing that really Paul was signaling to the Gentiles that if you really want to be accepted, that you have to do these things as well. And, and, and Peter, through his actions, he was actually adding to the gospel. And so Paul confronts him. And then Paul says, and he just reminds Paul, or he reminds Peter, he reminds the Galatians, he reminds us today that really if we are to be justified with before God, that that has to be through Christ, we cannot justify ourselves. So how do we take a passage like this? And we take some of the conflicts that are happening here, we apply it to our lives. What are some things that we should think about as we think about this conflict between Peter and Paul and really this conflict between Jews and Gentiles? How can we take this and apply something that seems very old in a different culture to our culture today? Well, Paul says this. This comes from Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at a couple of verses here if you want to flip over to Romans uh, chapter 12 so you can follow along in, in your Bible. This is Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He uses the word brothers to identify other Christians. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that is, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All right, let's stop there before we go on to the next verse. Paul says this. You are saved by grace. But that doesn't mean that we live lawless lives. What I mean by that, we live as if there is no standard, that we do whatever we want. Instead, really, we ought to honor God with our lives. We ought to be living sacrifices, which means that we allow God to use us, God to lead us. And then notice what he says in, in the very next verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renew of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, or what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I need to point out this: conformed to this world. Sometimes we as Christians we begin to think this way, and as a matter of fact, sometimes this very first is applied this way. That we as Christians, we ought to separate from unbelievers. That, that we do our Christian things over here and we have fellowship with, with Christians over here. And then we leave the unbelievers over here and they can have fellowship over there. And sometimes 
and this is, our, this is just the wrong thinking, sometimes we think, you know what, we ought to just separate from unbelievers. But the question is, is that what Paul is actually teaching here? That we ought to separate from, from unbelievers and have no unbelieving friends? Well, the question gets back to what is the world? Be not conformed to this world. Now, the word world is used in many different ways in Scripture. Let me give you an example here. This is from, from Psalm 33, 8, and this is hammering home this idea of what God's desire for our lives is. In verse 8, it says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, what is this world? This world is actually referring back to earth. Let all the inhabitants of the world, that is, all the inhabitants of earth, stand in awe to him. That is one of the ways in which world is used in Scripture. It's to refer to earth, the place that we live. So is Paul saying, do not be conformed to earth? Well, probably not. All right, probably not. He's not saying be conformed to earth. Let's, give it a, let's have another example. All right, this is a very well-known example. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we just, we just saw in Psalms that the word world can refer to earth. But does it refer to earth here? Again, what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, did he give his son to the earth? No. He didn't give his son to the earth. Who did he give his son to? Well, to all inhabitants, all nations. So there's a second way in which this idea of world is used, and that is all inhabitants of the world. All right? World being earth. And so, uh, for God so loved the world, all the inhabitants that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So then our question is, again, does Paul mean this? Do not be conformed to the inhabitants of the earth. Well, maybe. But let's look again. There's another way in which the word world is used, and this is the way that it's used in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, John uses it in a slightly different way. And what he is talking about is he is talking about the world system, the world philosophy, the environment of unbelievers. And I believe this is the same way that Paul is using this idea of do not be conformed to this world. It is the environment of unbelievers who actually go against God. And so Paul says this, Paul says, do not be conformed to the standard of what is acceptable in the unsaved world. But then he doesn't stop there. Notice again there in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so Paul 
he doesn't say that, that we as Christians, that we should separate from the world and, and have no unbelieving friends. That's not actually what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that we make sure not to follow the philosophy of the world, but that we continue to have friends within the world and we allow God's word to continue to change our lives. God's word, God's spirit as he leads our lives. And so sometimes in our fallen condition, we separate for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we do as Christians. We group up into these different factions and we say, well, we like this and they like that, so we don't want anything to do with them, and we're just going to hang out with other Christians. That's not really what the Bible communicates that should be true in a Christian's life. Christians ought to be friends with a purpose, that we should develop relationships with unsaved people so that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with unsaved people. Matter of fact, Paul says this in Romans as well. This is a little bit, a couple of chapters before chapter 12, and he says this, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so when we think about the gospel, if all Christians just cut themselves off from, from the world and they say, we don't want anything to do with that because they're unbelievers and, and they, they're, they're sinners and they don't know what is right, and, and we do, and, and, and we have the spirit in, our li- spirit in our life and we have the word of God, and we're just going to stay over here. If all Christians did that, the world would be lost. They would never hear the message of reconciliation. But we... As Christians, as God's church, have been given the message of reconciliation so that we might go and rescue them from the path that they're on, so that we might share with them that message of reconciliation. Sometimes in life, we we think to ourselves, does it really matter? I mean, if all Christians just decided to come over here in this group and, and leave the world to themselves, God would still save them. Well, yeah, God, is, God has all the power to save. But he has sent us to share that message. And that message of reconciliation is what they need for salvation. They need to realize that they are a sinner because they have broken God's law. That God's law is not there to help them enter into heaven, but really shows them that they are broken. And that Jesus Christ lived in their place, and he died in their place, and that he rose again for them. And so we think about that, what... um, Uh, we think about what Martin Luther did, the way that he really shook up the world. He began to confront really the norms of society. The Roman Catholic Church was, was kind of the leading church at that time. And he began to disagree with the, the, the leading mind of that time. And he really began to point out the truth. In our bulletin today, we, we have there um, something to meditate on on that path. And we are reminded there in in that uh, something to meditate that really the path that we should be on is not following the law, but really the path that we are on should be following in the steps of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, one thing that was said about Jesus Christ 
over and over by the Pharisees. They always talked about the fact that Jesus was a friend to sinners. And so my question for me, as well as for you today, is are we walking down that path? Do people see us as separating because we want to be clean and we don't want the world to affect us and the world system? So we're not going to create relationships with the world. Or are we following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, where people see us as friends of sinners? Our theme this year is be my witnesses. And if we're going to be witnesses, we need to move outside of our group of Christians and we need to start developing relationships in the world so that we might share that good news of Jesus Christ. And so my question today as we finish off our message, Jesus Christ was known as a friend of sinners. What are we known for? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture and that, that Paul was so convinced that the gospel is by grace alone that he wouldn't even add dietary requirements to it. And really, Peter shouldn't have added those things either, that you made it very clear to Peter that, that those things were overturned, that he was allowed to, to have fellowship with the Gentiles. And, and really, under peer pressure, he began to, to separate from the Gentiles and that the Gentiles picked up on that and, and that, that he was communicating something that was not connected to the gospel, that really the gospel is is this idea of, of being clean and clear before you because of Jesus Christ, the fact that he lived in our place, the fact that he died in our place. When we put our faith and trust in him, our sin is taken away, that it is placed upon him on that cross, but also his righteousness is applied to us. Lord, there is nothing that we can do to earn your favor. There is nothing that we can do to make you love us more because you already love us with a perfect type of love. But Lord, maybe in our minds we've began to think similarly to the way that Peter thought. That we have begun to divorce ourselves from unbelievers. That we have only developed relationships within the church and within Christians, and that we stopped reaching out to unbelievers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us to be friends of sinners, just like Jesus Christ was. Help us to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Continue to change our lives. Lord, I think about leaders as we think about Peter, and, and Peter was a good leader, and he was a pillar of the church, and and you were the one who called him to be an apostle and changed his name to rock, and yet he was not a perfect leader. And so, Lord, I pray for our leadership of Wilton Bible Church. I pray for our leadership of Wilton Christian School. That you'd help us to stay focused on you, that you would help us to stay focused on the gospel. And may you use Wilton Bible Church and the people that attend here that you might use Wilton Christian School and the teachers and the staff to continue to touch lives that your gospel might go out, that we might plant and water, and that you might uh, see the growth. And so, Lord, continue to work in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.